Welcome back to the OPEX podcast where fitness is explained. I am your host, Robbie Burke, and I'm joined on today's show by Christian Thibodeau. On this episode, Christian and I discuss everything and anything to do with neurotyping. This was a fantastic episode with Christian, guys. I know you're going to love it. Stay with us. Christian Thibodeau, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, sir. Thanks so much for making time. It's been a while since we spoke. Um, you've been on my own podcast twice before, but this is your first appearance in the OPEX podcast. So I really appreciate you making time. And just for the viewers and listeners, Christian went out and he got a webcam today and he's all set up. So I really The webcam doesn't even work. I mean, I, I went out of my way to buy a camera, buy a, a phone, another phone, a microphone, and nothing works. I had to like jerry-rig something and put my... My iPhone on my computer, which is on uh, like a, just a tub, a metal tub, just so that it's high enough. So yeah. that just tells you how much I wanted to be here today. <laughs> I re- appreciate the effort, bud. So listen, uh, I'd really love you to give your background. Um, I, even though I would say there'll be a lot of people watching and listening who'd be very familiar with who you are and your work. You've been a huge influence on, on many, many coaches. I mean, back in the day when the you know, the, the, your books came out, you know, you've had those classic books. Mike Boyle always speaks very highly of some of your writings. Um, and I'll link all that up in the show notes. But uh, yeah, just fill us in on your background. Bring us through like, you know, your, your start in the career and all the way up to where you are right now. And uh, even tell us about the old golf days. Hey, there you go. Well, it, wasn't, it was more than a phase, man. It was my passion for the time. Mm, I believe uh, so, yeah. Dude, I, I played. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I was actually discussing that with Ben Bruno recently. Because he was watching one of my uh, my videos, and in my intro, was I always do a mock golf swing with my my coaching stick, and he said, yeah, a pretty good golf swing going on there. Was I competed for since I think I think I started when I was twelve, and I competed until I was nineteen. Dude, I, I was spending like eight hours a day at the country club. My 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 father was the the president of the country club, so I had free pass and could could play even at the hours that junior players couldn't play so it was pretty awesome uh of course when i then i became more passionate about training of course i did still train at the time in fact i would say that my best golf was always uh when i i, I trained hard and my best golf was when i trained for olympic weightlifting so when i started focusing on olympic weightlifting that's when my golf game was the best i, I my, my my driving distance was a lot longer i was actually more precise uh, probably because the core got stronger, because my nervous system was more effective at creating those maximum contra- velocity contractions. Yeah, so that, that was for a while my, my, my passion. Of course, I did play uh, American football, played hockey like most Canadian boys, but I really, really was bad at hockey, so I didn't stick long. I played soccer, I played baseball, played pretty much every single sport, but I, I suck at all of them, which is why I became a coach, really, because uh, at first I needed... Uh, to get an advantage because, and as we will see, as we will discuss the neurotyping system, uh, my own personality, I'm someone with low self-esteem, with very low self-confidence, so, and I need other people to respect me, admire me, to feel good about myself. Mm. So I always, I always, always try to get respected or admired for something physical. And for me, it was being good at the sport because for me, sport was an easy way to get respected, getting admired. So that's why I tried all these sports. And when I, I realized that physically I didn't have any gifts, that's when I started training. I actually remember when I was 10, I was watch. I started, I started training when I was 10. I was watching 
TV and at every commercial, I would actually hold the, the, the low squat position for as long as I could. Or I, can, I would do push-ups and sit up while watching TV. Mm. Uh, so that's how I get started because I, I already, already believed and already had a feeling that if I get stronger, if I get more muscular, then I'm going to be a better athlete. Uh, so that's how it all started. And eventually my passion for training exceeded my passion for sports. And I was better at training and understanding training than I was at playing sports. So I started working with athletes pretty soon. In fact, as soon as my athletic career was over uh, playing football, then I, I transitioned right away into uh, strength coaching. I was really, really lucky because I was, my, my own strength coach was training several pro hockey players and very high-level athletes for a small city. And you wanted to retire, so he actually transitioned me into handling all his athletes. So at 21, I was already working with pro hockey players and pretty high-level football players. Uh, so it was actually an easy start for me. And then from there on, I just kept on building on knowledge and working on a, as a coach. And it's that desire to be respected, admired, that made me write my first book, The Black Book of Training Secrets, then Theory and Application of Modern Strength and Power Methods, the one that Mike Ball refers to. And it was solely a way for me to gain the respect and admiration of people I myself admired the Charles Polican, the Mike Boyles, guys who were already like well-established. I mean, it's funny because nowadays I, I often talk with both Charles Polican and Charles Staley. Mm. And these two guys were my original mentors. I mean, I, they were the main source of knowledge when I was growing. I, I remember buying Charles' book, The Polican Principles, and just reading it like 10 times. Then I would print out every single article you would write. Same thing with Charles Staley. He had a site called Myodynamics that was like in the 1990s. And I would print out every single article you would write. Same thing with Dr. Fred Atfield. And I was lucky enough to work with pretty much all of these guys. And it's funny now that sometimes we support each other. But yeah, that, that's how I got started. I got to work with athletes from 28 different sports. I'm probably the only person in existence that worked with someone who competed at the Olympia, the Olympics, and professional bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, sorry, and CrossFit, yeah. So you don't see many people working with CrossFit athletes and pro bodybuilders at the same time. But that's because I'm a generalist. I'm not great at anything, but I, I, I'm pretty good at everything. So that's why I can and move from one person to the other pretty, pretty easy. Uh, I think you're pretty good at getting people bigger, faster, stronger, in fairness to you. Yeah, if they, if they would put the work, work on, work in, yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah. I, I, and my neurotype, it's funny because I, I lack self-confidence, I lack self-esteem. I need other people to respect me and admire me, but I cannot accept a compliment. <laughs> I'm really uncomfortable with that. That's actually why... I, I, and that's the mechanism that allowed me to read people really efficiently. I always believed that my greatest skill as a coach was reading people. So your, when your, I was, your your parents were a psychologist, weren't they? Or both, both parents were psychologists. Yes, and my my sister was a recreologist, which is kind of similar, but working mostly with uh, mentally challenged, intellectually challenged individuals, mm, organizing. Uh, yeah. So, but uh, so so that's why I became really good at reading people because I I need to know that you like me, that you respect me, but I will not trust any compliment you give me because of my low self-esteem. Mm. So ever since I was a child, I developed that, that 
the quality of being able to read people because that was the only way for me to know if you like me, if you respected me, or if you didn't. So, and, and as a coach, that probably became my, my best tool. I mean, my, of course I know about methods, but I mean, you, you know about methods. You have everybody, every coach knows about methods and programming. In fact, I'm not even that good at programming. But I was good at reading people in the trenches and always knowing how to interact with each individual person so that they will get the best possible result and adapting the workouts accordingly. But that was always my greatest skill set. Great stuff. And just to let you know, you're, I, sh- I forgot to grab them actually before we, we went on, but your, your Black Broker Training Secrets and your theory and application of modern strength and power methods are up on my bookshelf alongside Charles's uh, policy principles. But um, it's funny you mentioned that's, that's the, the Quebec section. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Charles Staley too. I actually had a chance to meet with him when I was in Arizona, when I was at Altus, and uh, we had a great chat. He, he, it's, it's just like when I was sitting there, it's just like he lives such like a laid back lifestyle now. And I'm just thinking like, yeah you've had such a profound impact on so many coaches. And now he's just like, he just kind of goes about his day, does a bit of training. He's a lovely lifestyle now, but it's just like, it's, it's, he's just such a cool guy. And I was thinking like, he has been a huge influence on a lot of people. So uh, yeah, he just wanted to say that. Charles Especially Lee. in your part, I think that the, 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 you had the greatest impact on three regions. Right? Mm. Of course, the, the, the Canada, because he's from there. Of course, and all of his, like uh, the first, people he influenced were from Canada. Then all the, whole, the whole of the UK, he's really big in the UK and Australia. Yeah. He was the first strength coach to actually travel and teach in Australia, and he really opened that market up for us. So, mm-hmm. so we would have a job if it were not for him, at, at least not, not that good of a job. Uh, just before actually we hop on there too, you, some, some of your other books that don't get a lot of recognition, High Threshold and, and uh, Jekyll and Hyde are also fantastic. So High Threshold is jam-packed with information. So. Yeah. Well, High Threshold muscle building is really like, just like uh, the, the, the second book, but, but with more practical applications. Yeah. Because I, I've always, and that's funny because most people who've been following me uh, like in recent years, and when, I was, when I was writing for T-Nation and stuff like that, they all see me as a, a body transformation muscle building specialist. Mm. But I'm really a strength coach. Yeah. Of course, because now I'm teaching more, I don't train as much but other people. But I've always been a strength coach, first and foremost, working with athletes from 20 different sports. And uh, modern uh, theory and education it was all about the best methods for a strength coach. I threshold muscle building is taking that knowledge from athletic training and using it to build muscular bodies. Mm. So, so it's a simplified version, but it is really applicable if someone wants to translate or combine athletic training and muscle building. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's get into the main topic. So neurotyping, we've spoken about this before on, on my own podcast and you had two whopper episodes with Joel Smith and they're fantastic resources. I'll link them up in the show notes as well. So let's get into this uh, neurotype and how did it come about? Let's talk about the neurotypes. The microphone yeah. is all yours. You can just take it away. That, that's my strategy. It's funny because I always say when I, um, when I interview a client, I always want, for, I want to have them talk hmm. because that's where the neurotyping shines because you want to understand the person. Now, where does it come from? It comes from exactly what I mentioned earlier. My, my natural skill set as a coach has always been to be able to read people and understand them. So instinctively, I always adapted the training 
so that it would fit that person's as, as well as possible. And I always did that instinctively. And neurotyping led two things, well, three things really led me to creating the neurotyping system. The first thing is I wanted to systemize what I was myself doing instinctively because I knew that that type of person would respond better to that type of trading. I didn't understand why, but I knew it was the case. And what I wanted to do was understand why some people respond well to heavy loading and get bored with pump work. Why some people prefer that mind-muscle connection and, and just crumble when they have to lift heavy. So uh, I, I needed to find a reason why that was. And it, this led me to the, uh, analyzing the neurotransmitter and their impact on, on bodily function, on how you can tolerate stress, what kind of activity you are naturally drawn to. And then, of course, looking at ways to, without like actually measuring the neurotransmitter, which not everybody can, uh, then just by analyzing someone's personality, how can we know what kind of neurotransmitter dominance or deficit that person has and using that information to design the proper volume, the proper intensity, exercise selection, frequency, and whatnot. So, so that, that, and of course, the more people would ask questions, the more problems I faced, the deeper I have to dig, and I got a much better, much stronger understanding uh, of how the nervous system works. I've always known that the nervous system was the boss. I, I, in fact, I think that's something I said 12 years ago in a T-Nation video, I said the nervous system is the boss. Mm. And that was always been the, my, the driving force behind all my methodologies. It's, it's all about optimizing nervous system function. Even if your goal is muscle building, it's still the nervous system that recruits the muscle fibers, make those muscles contract. So the more efficient your nervous system is, the more muscle growth you're going to get. So, so that was always obvious to me. The, the, the second thing that, that prompted me to learn about or design the neurotyping system was I needed to figure out why I was so messed up as a human being. It's funny because you, you look at me and you look at, at like the, the, the articles on T-Nation, the videos on Tibarmi, uh, my, my social media, Tibbs is awesome, he's always funny, he's confident, all his stuff is great, he must be, always be eating right, he's always in shape. You know what? Christian Thibodeau is one messed up human. I mean, as I, I already mentioned the lack of self-esteem, lack of self-confidence, uh, but I, I, I have so many quirks. I mean, I always wear the same clothing and I, couldn't, I can't understand why. Now I can't. I, I, I have a problem adapting to new situation. Now I know why. Mm. Um, one thing that I always hated about myself is that I, I, I'm really, well, hypocritical. Not on purpose, but I always modify my personality to fit the person I'm talking to. And actually, when I do it, I'm re I realize I'm doing it and it pissed me off because I feel weak. You know, you're, you're, you're telling that person what he wants to hear. I couldn't understand why I was like that. I also am super lazy. I mean, when the heat is on and I need to produce, no one is more productive than I am. Like theory and application, you've read that book. It's like a pile of scientific information. It took me 10 days to write it. Mm. And that's only because it took me three days to do the review of literature. 
but seven days to write a 250 pages book. So when it's on, nobody's as productive as I am. But when it's not on, I will be on that sofa watching Netflix nine hours a day. And the house would not be clean. The grass is not being cut. I'm really a lazy, lazy person. And I couldn't understand why. Now I know why that is. That is simply because of my neurological, neurotransmitter dominance. And also, why do I tend to flirt with women so much? Even though I don't have a very high libido, I always try to hit on women. Not hit on women, but like just kind of being flirtish, especially on social media. And of course, that, had, that has caused some problems in my, my, in my marriage, in my relationship. But it's instinctive. I, I needed to do it. I did understand why. Now I understand why. So that was the second motivation behind developing the, the neurotyping system is understanding myself. And then, of course, it led to understanding other neurotypes, other personalities and stuff like that. Um, so, so that is uh, the second reason. The third thing that led to the neurotyping is we must not forget the pioneer work of Charles, who first was the first one to talk about neurotyping, uh, not neurotyping, but uh, neurological profiles and training preferences uh, in an article called uh, the five elements of training that was published like 15 years ago. That was my first introduction to that kind of thinking. And as soon as I read it, I knew that there was something there because it's something I have always used myself instinctively with my clients. I knew some people were more prone to or got better results with volume. Some people got better results from intensity, other from frequency. Uh, and that started to explain why. Of course, it was more utilizing Chinese medicine angle rather than the neurological angle. Uh, but it's, it's still used like the brave women assessment test. Uh, and when I used it, I didn't get the results I wanted. So I, I, I tried to push it a bit further. And there were some minor differences, minor in precision with the brave women assessment that, that I, I, I needed to, to change to make the system uh, effective. So that's really how it, it got to be developed in the first place. And of course, the more I teach it, the more questions I get the more problems people present to me because, yeah, you have five basic neurotypes. But in reality, uh, what happens is if you don't fit in that, in that one box 100%. So, for example, if you are a type 1A, the type 1A is, uh, okay, I'm going to give you a very easy example, all right? If you take the extreme of what an 1A is, the, 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 the 1A++, plus plus plus, the caricature of what the 1A is, it's Donald Trump, okay? It, it, it's super dominating. It, it is always being vocal, always trying to convince people. Everything is a competition. You need to win every time. You need to be the leader in every situation. You don't deal well with authority or people who are trying to go against you. Not only don't you care about what other people think of you, you actually like to go against the grain and shock people. So, so that is a 1A. They are normally very, very good under pressure. They don't have any anxiety at all. They have no self-confidence issues. They have no empathy. But you have some people who are 1A. They have all the signs, but... They are extremely emotional and they have a lot of empathy and some anxiety. So, well, okay, well, how can that be? Because they are basically the two opposite. Well, it's because you have a neurotransmitter called glutamate. 
And glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter that, that it is basically an emotional amplifier. It, it, it magnifies your emotional feelings, your, your reaction. So uh, when, when you have a, 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 like a love emotion, it's, it's like magnified by 10. When you have a failure emotion, it's also magnified by 10. If you have high glutamate, that is. Now, normally, a type 1A will have low glutamate and high GABA. Both are, normally, a type 1A is dopamine dominant, so is, is main activating neurotransmitter. The main neurotransmitter that gets his neurons firing in all cylinders is dopamine. That's why they are confident. That's why they're competitive. That's why they easily get addicted to anything that gives them pleasure. Uh, and their main inhibitory neurotransmitter is GABA. They have lots of GABA, so that, that's why they can train heavy very often, because as soon as the lifting session is over, they can put the brakes on. Because when you lift heavy, your nervous system is firing on all cylinders, right? And GABA, it puts the brakes on so you can relax. If you can't do that, your nervous system keeps firing for hours, creating more CNS fatigue. But a 1A with high GABA will be able to train heavy twice a day and sometimes every day. Now, if for some, re for some reason the, 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 the conversion of glutamate to GABA is decreased, it's, it's by the enzyme called glutamate decarboxylase. Now, that enzyme, if it's too low, then you do not create that GABA, so you pile on glutamate. Mm. So a 1A, who normally would have high GABA, because he has problem with his enzymes, will accumulate glutamate, which will make him emotional, which actually make him more empathetic, uh, and also more prone to anxiety and stress. So he still has that need to be the leader. He still has that competitivity. He still has that need to shock people or, or to control others. But now, on top of it, he's going to have a stronger emotional response to failure and successes because of the glutamate increase. And they are more empathetic. And sometimes, they, they, they actually, they, they don't recognize themselves when that happens. And that is often when they are under lots of stress. So they will have low GABA and high glutamate, which is, which is not normal for them. But it can happen under certain circumstances. So... so Every time those people ask me questions, I just do more research and I just make the system better. So the, the way the system works is really I want people to understand the personality of the, of, of the, the person they're dealing with and where does that personality comes from? What neurotransmitter are high or low? Uh, will they have a lot of inhibitory neurotransmitter which will allow them to train more often? And to train heavier, so when you know when you know that you can much more easily tailor the program to their need. If you have a client who has a lot of serotonin or GABA, well, these people will be great under pressure because they, the, the serotonin, especially serotonin, when your brain gets overexcited, right? Because there's an optimum zone to be in to perform well. If the brain is going too fast. Then you lose control. You start to overthink paralysis by analysis. You're, you react too fast. Your muscle tension reduces your range of motion. So, so, but if you are not activated enough, you're lazy, you're not motivated, you're not competitive, and your muscle don't contract as hard, you want that optimum zone. So 
adrenaline will get you up there. But if it gets too high, then you're going to choke. You're going to have bad performance under pressure. And that's where serotonin, which brings you back to that optimal zone, comes in. So if someone has a high level of GABA and serotonin, they're going to be great under pressure. And they will also be great at recovering from heavy workouts because it's the same neurological skill set. After a workout, you need to bring your brain back down in intensity. You need to calm your neurons. It's the same thing as keeping your brain under control when you're performing. So when an athlete has the capacity to train very heavy very often, so for example, if he lifts heavy or have a neurological base workout four, five, six days a week, like the Bulgarians do, for example, and they still have a high performance, there's no decrease in performance, and they have no feelings of fatigue and lack of motivation, we know that these guys will be great under pressure because they have the genetic, the, the, the neurological makeup to be able to keep their brain under control when things get tough. They get amped up, but they stay in that, in that right, right zone. Now, on the other hand, some people, they don't have that. So if they train very heavy or maximum output neurological session, it will take them five to seven days to fully recover. So, so you have to understand that when you're planning training programs. Just like some people uh, will prefer feeling the mind-muscle connection or big pump on training because they, they, they need that, that feel-good feeling. Now, if you, if you take a, a 1A or 1B, 1A, 1B are not normally the best strength and power athletes. American football players, rugby players, hockey players, basketball players, uh, even some soccer players, uh, track and field athletes. Now, these guys are, are great under pressure. They are explosive and they are very goal-oriented in the gym. So as long as the weight keeps moving up, they feel motivated. They don't need to feel a tremendous pump. In fact, they, they, don't, they don't search for it. That's why oftentimes when they're lifting, uh, they, they will lift fast or, or they don't focus on squeezing and contracting. And if you tell them to do that, they actually lose their performance. But you have other people like a 2B. A 2B, 2B is your typical bodybuilder. He needs to feel that mind-muscle connection. And that is because his dominant neurotransmitter is glutamate. Glutamate makes you seek those pleasurable sensations, those feelings. It enhances that perception. They, anything that gives them pleasure or good sensation, they can easily get addicted to. That's why they are also very emotional. Glutamate makes you very emotional, makes you prone to uh, exuberant displays of emotions. Like the, the, the typical image would be like those divas or, or just go crazy like for no reason. They just make a scene because they, they like to live their life one movie scene at a time. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I was talking to my, uh, my friend Paul Carter. And Paul was having a rough time in his life. He made a, I don't have a problem talking about it because he made like this long Facebook post about it. So he is really open with his personal life. He was having problems with his older daughter. They would have a, a really rough relationship. So I told him, Paul, you need to make her feel like she is an important part of your life, that you need her to be happy. First thing he said, well, I'm going to buy her a big-ass teddy bear and go bring it to her job. No, Paul, you don't understand. 
what you need is you need to open yourself up to her. You open yourself to us on, on, on Facebook, but okay, I'm, I'm going to write her a letter and bring her like a big ass teddy bear. That's glutamate dominance, a very high glutamate. They need those big gestures. Same thing as they need to post picture of themselves on social media to get the, the positive response. They need to put those big posts on social media. They, they, they love big public displays of emotions. That comes from a very high level of glutamate. But the problem is that that also means they were going to have low GABA. And low GABA means more anxiety and less capacity to handle stress. Mm. On top of it, too much glutamate can be can have a brain toxicity effect to them. So it can actually create nervous system problems and even things such as Alzheimer's disease and other neurological problems if it's maintained for a long time. You need that conversion into GABA. You need a balance between both to be happy. So, so you have five neurotypes and each of them has their own characteristics. So, and that will allow us to understand like the 1A, they love intensity. They need to move every way. They can recover, recover very fast from heavy sessions, but they cannot do volume in, in a workout. Mm. That's because they, they are very sensitive to dopamine, but they have a low level of dopamine. As soon as they start producing adrenaline, when the volume gets too high or they're training too fast, while well, they are using that dopamine to fabricate adrenaline and you're crashing your dopamine, which gives you symptoms of like apathy, lethargy, no motivation, and the need to eat crap. Mm. Because eating crap will force your body to produce dopamine. So that's why people who have a dopamine depletion will tend to eat a crappy diet. Now, on the other hand, you have people like a 1B, well, they are built for explosiveness because they have high acetylcholine level on top of their dopamine dominance. These are the best natural athletes because Yes, we understand that acetylcholine is great for memory, for forming memory, for, coordinate, for, for uh, multitasking, mental tasks, but it's also involved in the stretch reflex. The stretch reflex is highly dependent on acetylcholine levels. So if you have high acetylcholine level, your, your stretch reflex is more easily triggered and is more forceful. So it makes you naturally more explosive, more agile especially because you can rebound from one direction to the other. Uh, it also makes you better at learning new skills. So normally someone with very high acetylcholine level, they are the athletes who can just look at the new skills, do it a few times, and boom, they, they have it pretty much perfectly. Like the natural athletes would just eight. The guy who plays golf once a month, like my brother, my, my, my older brother would play golf like three times a year, and he plays like a, like a PGA pro, like a perfect swing. Very, very high acetylcholine level. He can play any sport. He will be good at any sport. So that's high acetylcholine. The, the natural athlete, the more explosive, very high skill athlete. My wife's like that. Uh, these guys, normally they are more explosive than they are strong. Hmm. For example, the CrossFit athlete I work with, she had 110 kilos power clean. But her, it was a good girl. And her best deadlift was 125 kilos. Mm. That's a very high ratio for a power clean, right? Yeah. Normally, a girl with a 110 power clean, she would have to have like a 170 deadlift, roughly. So she was like 50Ks below what she should have been able to do. And not only that, like even with like 
115, 120, she's deadlifting with the back rounded, like trying to yank the bar off the floor. That, that's something that the 1A does. The 1A is built for explosiveness and a stretch reflex. It will always have problems with the deadlift because the deadlift starts from a dead start. You cannot use a stretch reflex. You, you, so meant, they, you, meant, you meant 1B there, though. Did you, you said 1A. One, uh, sorry, 1B, yeah. 1B, yeah. Sorry, 1B, sorry yeah. 1B now, the 1A will be great on the deadlift yeah, because yeah. they're great for static strength. So the 1B, they will have problems with the deadlift because they will try to yank it off the floor. And they're, The 1A is a baseball bat. The 1B is a whip. Mm. So he's trying to, to create acceleration. So he does not create maximum tension. So when he's trying to yank the bar off the floor in a deadlift, the core is not solid, so it just will just round up like a like a like a fishing rod. Uh, that's their natural tendency, and you will see them like the first rep is really really hard, then the second and third rep are super easy. That's because on that second rep they they have the eccentric to preload the muscle. Same thing on a, a military press. On a military press, they are really bad from the start, but after that, if they can get, get through it, they're going to be better. But that first rep really takes a lot out of them. So when I, I, I work with a 1B and we're doing military press, the first rep is always a push press. And we don't count it as a rep, but just push press it up. So you can actually start the first rep from the top so you have the benefit of the stretch reflex. Same thing on a deadlift. I normally have them start the bar from the finished position. So unracking the bar, walking back. And, and even if they pause for a second or two in the bottom position, they still have the benefit of the stretch reflex, which lasts about two seconds. It's, it's really more preloading the muscle than just rebounding up. So, so that's an example. Of course, the 2A, like me, the 2A can do anything. The, the 2A is the jack of all trades. I mentioned earlier that one of my biggest problems was that I tend to always mimic the person I'm talking to or at least adjust my language or my behavior to please that person. Mm. That's, that's my strategy. I need everybody to like me. So I will, um, and for me, for 2A, the strategy to be liked is to create a reciprocity between you, me and the person I'm talking to. And the fastest, easiest way to create that reciprocity is to show him that I am like him. So a 2A often interrupts the person and complete their sentence. That is a strategy to show, hey, we are thinking the same thing. I'm finishing your sentence. That's a strategy. Mm. It's a subconscious, of course. Then the 2A will often say, oh, yeah, the same thing happened to me. I did the same thing. It always happened to me. Again, it's a strategy to create reciprocity. Now, for that reason, the type 2A the type 2A has a pretty equal, he's adrenaline dominant, but he has a pretty much balanced level of serotonin, GABA, acetylcholine. So, so he can adjust very easily. So the high serotonin and the high GABA means that he can really easily bring his nervous system to the optimal level to function in the situation. They are very adaptable, okay? Uh, but because of the adrenaline dominance, I am adrenaline dominant, when I'm at rest and adrenaline is low, I'm super lazy because I'm so sensitive to adrenaline that when I'm at rest, the body produces zero adrenaline because if I maintain even a slight level, then I get amped up. So, and when you have no adrenaline, your confidence goes down and you are at the bottom of the neural activation scale. So when you're at the bottom, you are lazy. You're not motivated. You're not competitive. So that's why when I don't have any uh, like thing that I have to produce right now, 
I'm super lazy and I'm doing nothing because my adrenaline is low. As soon as adrenaline get, kicks in, well, I'm becoming like I am now. I mean, uh, it, it, it's funny because if we were talking, let's say, for example, in person, my, you would probably have a hard time understanding me talk because I would have like the worst French-Canadian accent in the history of mankind. I can barely be understood by English-speaking people, which is not the case right now. Because adrenaline speeds up my neurons. I can think faster. I can make connections faster. I can talk better. I'm more confident. So it, it, to me, like a 2A is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's why they are great at, at fitting in with everybody. They adjust their personality to the person they are with. Like the 1A, he will force his personality over other people. The type 3 also is incapable of changing. The type 3 is the typical introvert like accountant, like to be alone, doesn't talk, doesn't want to reveal anything about himself, explosion, expressionless face. And that is simply from anxiety. The more anxiety you have, the more protective about yourself you become. So people who are introverts, really it's a strategy to protect yourself against excessive anxiety. They already have a high anxiety level. And anxiety is nothing more then your brain firing so fast, you're feeling out of control. Mm. Anxiety is just your neurons firing too fast for you to control them. So that's why you start to overthink, overanalyze, paralysis by analysis. These symptoms are quote unquote anxiety. They are not full on panic attacks, but it's anxiety is only your nervous system firing too fast. So you overthink, you, you're, sleep, you're trying to sleep at night, but you can't because you cannot switch your brain off. You're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking. That's why a type three, the introvert, is always creating scenarios in his brain. And when he has a task to do, that he must, he must think about every single detail. He overanalyzes everything. So that's why, um, like for example, Charles mentioned that those who are of that type, he, of course, he uses a Chinese element, not the type three. He doesn't train with them. He doesn't train them because they're annoying. And Charles is a 1A, so yes, a type 3 is super annoying. Why are they annoying? Because they are always asking questions. Mm. Why am I putting my feet there? I've seen a video of Chris Duffin, and he's not suggesting the same thing. Which, who, who's right? Uh, do I have to put my hands 14 inches or 12 inches? Should I turn my feet out or not? Do I need to wear a belt or not? Can I wear straps or not? Do I put my... They will ask questions about every single detail. And for some coaches, especially the, the, the 1A and 1B who are impatient by nature, that is extremely annoying. But the reason why they are asking all of these questions or even saying something like, well, uh, my old coach had not me squat this way and it worked. Why am I changing? For you, that is super annoying because it tells me, okay, you don't trust me. But that's not what he's doing. The type three also has no empathy. So he has no real feelings. So he doesn't, he doesn't think about not hurting your feeling. He just is asking that question to decrease his anxiety because they are anxious. So when you're telling them what, okay, what you've been doing is wrong and you need to change it, okay, 
what can I do now? What, what is the right way? They, they, they are panicking. The reason why they are asking all those questions is to decrease their anxiety because the more anxiety they have, the more cortisol they produce, the, 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 the more muscle tension they have, the higher the injury risk and the less gains they're going to make. The, the uh, type three, to be able to progress, they need to feel in perfect control in the workout and feel perfectly safe. So that's why they are asking all of these questions. So that is, of course, just a, a really broad uh, explanation of what it can do training-wise, mm. but also how you interact with a client. No, it's great. It's all great. So uh, I suppose getting maybe more into the training prescriptions for each one of these types. Um, so just a little summary there I think would be good for the viewers and listeners. So we have five types. We have yep. 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, and we have a 3. Yep. Um, and we type 1s, love intensity, but not a lot of volume. 1B is like a lot of variety in their training. Um, 1A is more, has very good static strength, more more uh, neuromuscular, whereas the uh, type 1 is more like of a springy, elastic type individual, stress shortened cycle, uh, pick up things very, very quickly, like have very good skill acquisition capabilities. Um, then we have 2A, which are fun, fun, they like fun challenges. 2B are mind, muscle, and then 3 are your sort of harm avoidance and i'm getting these from the the slides yeah that, that's that's the old version it's still it's still accurate but it, it's the old version but uh we can, i can go me but it, it's pretty yeah, much correct yeah. if, if you go uh, like all the, the the types like the 1a the 1a the 1a is the the, the loud mouth mm. right mm. the extreme competitor the, the person who walks into a room and, and he tries to take control of the situation he needs to be the leader. He needs to be the center of attention. He, would, they be, is, would they be like your typical alphas, you know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like the, they are normally like the entrepreneurs. They, are, they need to be the boss. They need to control everything. Now, the thing is that they are normally extremely productive because they, will, they just work super hard because they want to be the best but they have no attention to details. Hmm. Like they, they, they are the guys who will just live fucking heavy, but, but it looks like they have no control of the barbell. They, 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 they don't focus on technique as much as, as well, as long as a bar goes from point A to point B, they're happy now. Uh, the type 1A is naturally built more for strength and not explosiveness. If a 1A has to be explosive, he needs to be very strong. Uh, like, for example, Ben Johnson, sprinter, was extremely powerful. Mm. But that's because he squatted 660, well, 300 kilos for sets of five reps. Half squatted. So, pardon? Half squatted. Yeah, it's still parallel. Oh, it's, like it's, still, it's still impressive. Uh, it's, still, it's still you. But and if you compare that to, like, Kim Collins, who barely lifted any weights at all, and he was pretty much similar in speed. Now, he's a 1B. Ben was more of a 1A. And if you look at it, his characteristics, like he was super high libido, very, very dominant personality. So, so he needed to be really, really, really strong to be super fast. Some other people, like the 1B, they don't need to be as strong to be explosive and to be fast because they have that naturally. Now, if you look at the 1A, the 1A will be best with using, like again, static strength, uh, heavy lifting, slower tempo, slow eccentrics, uh, isometrics. Uh, slower speed lifting. They, 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 they can't do as much volume though. That's because they don't have the isotylcholine. Now, why does that matter? Well, if a 1A, okay, every time you have to produce a lot of adrenaline, 
you are depleting your dopamine mm. because adrenaline is fabricated from dopamine. Now, the one A and the one B are dopamine dominant, meaning that they're driving neurotransmitter. The, the neurotransmitter that, that potentiates them the most is dopamine, and that's because they are super sensitive to it. They respond very strongly to dopamine, uh, so they don't produce a lot of it. Mm. You, don't, you don't need to produce a lot of it if you have a very high sensitivity. And because of that, it's very easy for them to deplete their dopamine if they are producing too much adrenaline. Like a typical 1A or 1B, after a competition, they might be 7 to 10 days without being able to hit the gym. They have no motivation. They have no drive because the, uh, the excess of adrenaline just depleted their dopamine. Now, the main difference between the 1A and the 1B is the acetylcholine level. That's what makes a 1B explosive, fast agile, uh, very good at picking up new motor skills, uh, acetylcholine. But acetylcholine does another thing. Acetylcholine decreases the production of adrenaline because acetylcholine shares many of the same function as adrenaline yeah, as far as muscle contraction strength and pumping blood uh, to the muscles. So if you have acetylcholine level, blood flow is easier and the muscles are contracting harder. You don't need as much adrenaline to get the job done. So if you, have a, you are a 1B with acetylcholine, well, you can do a bit more volume because when you, you are doing that volume or increasing activation, you don't need to release as much adrenaline to get the job done. Mm -hmm. So you don't deplete dopamine as much. So you can do a bit more volume. They also need variation. The main reason they need variation is, again, the acetylcholine uh, because acetylcholine gives you the capacity to multitask. Okay, I'm going to give an example. Um, I'm working on my computer. If I'm writing an article and my wife comes in and she, she says to me and she starts talking, nah, 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 I, 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 I'm aware that there are sounds coming from my left, but I cannot make up the words. If I need to understand her, I, I have to turn away from my text and listen to her. Then it will take me about two minutes to be able to continue writing the article. I cannot multitask. I have low acetylcholine. Mm -hmm. My wife is a 1B. She has high acetylcholine level. Uh, she, she, she has no formal training in Olympic weightlifting. And within a week, she was doing a picture-perfect squat clean with, uh, with 80 kilos, uh, 77 kilos. It's just crazy, just natural. She was a former gymnast, yeah. so very yeah. body control. Now, her, high acetylcholine, she can play Candy Crush, pat the dog, watch TV, and listen to me at the same time. So it's like multi, she can multitask. Now, these people, because of the capacity to multitask, they need to change exercises more often. They need to have more exercises in a workout. They need to have A1, A2, B1, B2, alternating, because if the brain has a capacity and it doesn't use it, then it kills your motivation. If you have the capacity to multitask, you need to use it. Another thing that acetylcholine does is it allows you to very easily transfer the gains from one exercise to another. So these are the guys who can do zercher squat for three weeks, front squat for three weeks, box squat for three weeks. They don't, didn't do a single back squat, and when they tested, the back squat went up. Mm. If I stop doing back squat, even though I've been squatting for like 25 years, sometimes as much as six days a week, if I stop back squatting, even if my front squat goes up, my back squat will go down. 
because low acetylcholine, the strength transfer is, is much worse. That is also important when you're working with athletes because if you have an athlete with acetylcholine, you can change the exercises very often. West Side Barbell is a typical 1B program. You're changing the max effort exercise every week. You're changing the assistance work pretty much every week. You have explosive and you have heavy. So, so the, the, the 1B will respond really, really well to a West Side type approach because it will be able to take the gains made from the assistance or, or, or the, 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 the exercise in the rotation and transfer it to the competition lift. But if you have, you have a, someone with low acetylcholine does it, do it, it won't work as well. Like a 1A would probably be best with a more Russian or, or Soviet approach of utilizing mostly the competition lift, but repeating them more and more and more and more, becoming really efficient at those movements. So these would be uh, two main differences in how they train, for example. Now, uh, the type 2A is both the easiest and the hardest type to train because with the 2A, everything works but nothing works for a long time. And you mentioned that it, it needs to be fun, and that is correct. The 2A, they need to enjoy their workout the most. If a workout is boring to them, if a workout is not, doesn't feel new, then they lose motivation. And they will actually have symptoms of CNS fatigue. And they have lack of motivation, low energy, it's really bad. Now, the, 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 the type 2A also needs variation, very much so. But where the 1B needs variation mostly in the form of exercises because they have the capacity to, to change, to transfer the gains from one to the other, the, the, the 2A needs variation mostly in the form of training methods. That's why I've always been a method guy. That's why I love training methods. If you look at theory and application of modern strength and power methods, it's basically a book all about the various training methods you can use. Mm. And that's because that is, has always been my interest because as a 2A, I need to change. I don't change my exercises much. I, I pretty much always use the same exercises and I've always been since I've been training. I, I always do front squats or back squats. I always do military press. I always do bench press. I always do snatch grip IPO. It used to be snatch but now it's mostly snatch grip IPO. I always do seated rows. I always do uh, barbell curls. I always do GM press. So it's pretty much always the same thing. I don't change my, my exercise that much. Maybe the assistance works from time to time, but I always change the method. I will use change. I will use bands. I will use weight releasers, slow tempo, pause lifting. See, to me, that is what gives me the most satisfaction. So, so, so that is the main difference. Wave loading. Yeah. You love your wave loading. Wave loading. What, what, and why? Because not a single set has the same feeling. Hmm. Like three, two, one, every set is different. Different way, different way. There's nothing worse for a type 2A to do 10 sets of 10 reps or eight sets of five reps with the same weight. I mean, it's repetitive. It's not fun. It needs to change. It needs to move around. And after two or three weeks on a certain type of training, they get bored. So you need to change very often. When I train at 2A, normally we are using phases lasting four weeks, but each phase is divided into two two-week phases where we keep the same training goal or training approach, but the methods and, and the loading scheme will change. Um, if you look at a 2B, the 2B is your, your typical bodybuilder. They, 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 they don't have the capacity to do, but they can do neurological work, 
but it takes them a long time to recover from it because they have low GABA, because they have high glutamate. High glutamate is the, the, the glutamate is their dominant neurotransmitter. For 2A, it's adrenaline. For type 2B, it's glutamate. That's why a 2B is emotional. It is it likes to have those deep conversations. That's why they like to open up. That's why they like those big displays of emotion. That's why, that's why they like to live their life on Facebook or social media. Uh, these are two Bs. They need the attention. They need uh, the display of affection. They need to share the emotions with the world. They are also very good at helping people deal with their own emotional issues. Oftentimes, they are much better helping other people than they are at helping themselves. Now, if you have high glutamate, which are all signs of high glutamate, uh, you have low, low GABA because GABA is made from glutamate. So if you have high glutamate, it means you're not transforming a lot of them into GABA. So you have more anxiety. So that's why a 2B, also when training, they, they can't train. When they're training heavy, they are the typical type who, whose nervous system keeps firing on all cylinders for three, four, five hours after the workout. And as long as it keeps firing, it puts you in what we call sympathetic mode. And as long as you are in sympathetic mode, your body is pumping out cortisol, which decreases uh, muscle building, recovery, and all that stuff. But it, it also desensitizes your adrenal receptors. Because when you are in parasympathetic mode, in sympathetic mode, you also stimulate adrenaline release. And if your adrenaline keeps pumping for five, six hours after the workout, well, you keep the adrenaline binded to the adrenal receptors. And the adrenal receptors are not designed to have adrenaline binded for six, eight hours. Mm. It's a hit and run neurotransmitter. So if they are keeping on the adrenal receptors for a long, a long time, well, you will have what we call short-term adrenal desensitization by the way what we call adrenal fatigue nine times out of ten then it is not adrenal fatigue. you don't fatigue the adrenal glands that is like the extreme extreme case what happens is you become desensitized to adrenaline your receptors become desensitized to adrenaline because you've been binded for too long too often so that's what happens uh, so 101B, uh, 2B, who does not have the GABA or serotonin to calm the brain down after a workout while it risks having that desensitization occur. That's why Paul Carter often writes about uh, what he called workout hangover, like feeling drunk, unmotivated the next day after every workout because himself had that occur many times because he has that issue. He's a type 2B. And that doesn't mean they can't train heavy. It means that when they're training heavy, well, they, they, they need to plan a day off, the day after, because they, there's no way they can lift heavy again, or at least a restorative load. Uh, and when they are training heavy, they need to decrease the volume dramatically for the rest of the session. They can also use supplements to inhibit the nervous system. So, for example, the amino acid glycine. Glycine is a neurological inhibitor. It does in the brain pretty much what GABA does. So when you're taking glycine after a workout, well, you can calm your brain down, calm your neurons down, decreasing the risk of what we call neurological fatigue. Neurological fatigue, it's 
it can be two things. Well, three things, really. The first thing is dopamine depletion. The second thing is a desensitization of the adrenal receptors. And the third thing is nervous system inflammation. The nervous system inflammation would occur oftentimes if you have like very, very, very high glutamate, but it, it's not as, as often that we see it. But the, 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 both the dopamine depletion and the adrenal receptor desensitization comes from excess adrenaline production. And that, that stays high after a workout if you cannot calm the nervous system down. So utilizing glycine post-workout, if you are not a type 1A or 1B, will allow you to recover much faster from a heavy workout because it will shut down your brain much, much more easily. So instead of having the nervous system firing on all cylinders in sympathetic mode for four, five, six hours, it will last about 90 minutes an hour. So, so you are much easier to recover neurologically, but also you, you stop overproducing cortisol because as long as you're in that sympathetic mode, you are pumping out cortisol, which of course decreases uh, the capacity to build muscle. So, so that's a very simple supplement that can really help a type 2B train heavy now. But most of the time, it will be those mind-muscle connection pump work. They, they, a type 2B likes the pretty. They likes the good feeling. So that's why when they are pumping and they feel their muscles swollen up and that pleasurable pump, they, they really love that. And they are also those who will spend two hours getting prepared to go clubbing. They, they, they have to use to wear the perfect shirt with the perfect outfit. I mean, I'm, I must have very low glutamate because I, I'm the worst dresser in the world. But a type 2B, they will like always look their best, always come there perfectly. They, they love to go shopping. They just love pretty things, good-looking things. That's the glutamate that, that in them that makes them do that. Now, you have the type 3. The type 3... It's a weird type because he's also glutamate dominant, but for him, he has low serotonin and low GABA. So he has very high anxiety. Hmm. Remember that glutamate is an emotional amplifier. So whereas it, it, the, the glutamate make the 2B feel emotional, the, or having big emotions, the, 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 the glutamate make the type 3 feel more anxious because it amplifies those feelings, hmm. kind of like weed. Weed in, uh, increases your own feeling. So, so a type 3 will be more introverted, will be self-protective, more closed up on himself. He doesn't want to associate with other people. He does not like to reveal information about himself. He hates conflict. Uh, and normally, training-wise, since he has more anxiety, he will tend to have a lot of mobility issues, which is kind of weird because a type 3 oftentimes has less muscle mass because uh, more anxiety, more cortisol and whatnot. Now, uh, but they have mobility issues oftentimes because that's one thing people don't understand. Anxiety increases muscle tightness. That's, in fact, one of the main reasons why people are choking in sports because when they are anxious anxious is only the nervous system firing too fast so when you are increasing your nervous system firing rate at first you get into that high performance zone but if you increase it even more your performance will start to drop because you're thinking too much but also because 
Well, when you are low, muscle contraction or muscle tension is low. When you increase your nervous system, your muscles are contracting harder. But if you keep firing your nervous system even higher, then muscle contraction strength becomes muscle tension. And when your, your muscles are tense or tight, it will affect technique. And tension or, uh, sorry, anxiety increases tension mostly in the flexor muscles. So you can see how it can change your running mechanics, your snatch technique, your gymnastic performance, your jumping height, uh, your playing sport changing direction. So, so you will lose your coordination because your muscles are, are tighter than usual. I mean, we've all like, done workout where the muscles were super tight and we had problems squatting even with an empty barbell. Well, that's what anxiety does. So if you're a type three, uh, well, you will have that anxiety during a workout and it can create mobility issues. A lot of mobility issues actually come from anxiety, not actual tissue problems. Mm. Now, for, that's why for a type three, the type three of all the types need or should have the less variation in exercises. Okay, so for, you have a type three who has anxiety, you put a front squat in their program. Well, first of all, they're gonna ask 10,000 questions. Should I cross my arm here? Should I hold it like a clean? Can I use straps? What is the width I should be using? Do I put it on my clavicle or my delts? Do I keep stay upright? Do I have to put my feet at hip width or shoulder width? Do I have to, to turn my feet out? You're going to have ask all the possible questions. And that is only because they're anxious. So the first two or three weeks, they have that higher anxiety because they don't know the movement doesn't feel well. After four weeks, they kind of feel comfortable in the movement, but it's still not perfect. Now, after four weeks, you're changing for a back squat. First, you're gonna ask 10,000 questions. Why am I switching to a back squat? I was just starting to get good on the front squat. Okay, do I put the barbell on my traps? It hurts. Can I put it a bit lower? Uh, you're gonna have to, because it's all from anxiety. Uh, it will take them three weeks to feel somewhat comfortable with a back squat, overcome their anxiety, after four weeks, okay, it feels a bit better. Okay, you're going to switch to a box squat. Well, first of all, you're going to have 10,000 questions. You, you, you see where I'm getting with it. So, so a type three, if you change their main movements too often, they actually won't ever be able to stimulate growth and strength gains because they will always be producing, uh, underproducing because anxiety reduces range of motion and puts a break on their performance. A type three can only begin to get stronger and build muscle when it starts to feel safe and comfortable with the exercises. So these are the guys who, who will prefer to stick with the same exercise for two years, three years, and it works for them because the more comfortable they are with a movement, the harder they can push, the better gains they're gonna get. So it's really a, like the main difference. Of course, there are many more intricacies like the rest intervals, like the type 1A and the type 3 are those who need the longest rest intervals. The type 2A, those who need the shortest rest intervals. Uh, and it's all neurological based, based on uh, the neurological system. But the main difference is the type 1A, when he takes rest, when he rests, he needs to rest. A type 3, when he rests, he can have active rest. Doing mobility, he's, the type 3 will actually benefit from doing foam rolling and mobility exercises between sets. Whereas no other type can do that and perform. So it is, it's really about understanding how each type responds to training. 
And on, on that spectrum from type one to type three, type ones, uh, so if we're going on a spectrum from one to three, intensity mm-hmm. is higher towards the one end and lower towards the three end. Correct. And, Correct. And Correct. Volume is the opposite volume is higher towards the tree and then lower towards the one end. Is that correct? Actually, the, the volume would be more of a pyramid. Okay. Like the, the highest volume is a type 2A. Oh. The 2A, because a type 2, well, actually, the type 2A can tolerate the higher volume if he has a combination of neurological and muscular. Okay. Because they have a, a, a fairly high level of every neurotransmitter, they can easily adapt to every situation, but they are never... The, the 2A is a jack of all trade, but a master of none. Mm. So he cannot do as much high intensity work as a 1B. He cannot do as much bodybuilding work as a 2B. But if he has a combination in the workout, which is the best way to train for them, then he can do a very high volume of work. Uh, the 2B can do a very high volume of work bodybuilding wise. But as soon as he has neurological work in there, it drops dramatically. Mm-hmm. The type 3 can actually do a decent amount, of, a fairly high amount of volume in a workout, okay? But you cannot train often. So the weekly volume will be lower. Like a type three should train about three days a week. Sometimes four if he, that's all he's doing, but normally three days a week because they, they already have like a ton of cortisol production. So training too often for them will actually be more catabolic than anabolic. So, the, the, but they, they can do a very high amount of sets uh, of each exercise. In fact, the, well, the, but the volume for a type three comes mostly from those warm-up sets. Uh, when I, I work with a type three, we normally have twice as many warm-up sets on a big lift as work sets. So if we're gonna have, like, when I say twice, like 1.5 to two, so if we have like four work sets, we might do six warm-up sets, gradually heavier. And the type three will not have a decrease in performance training that way because they are built for resistance and endurance. So they won't have a problem with that. I've had a type three athlete. Of course, I, I, she was a 52-year-old female, 60, not even 60, like 57 kilos, 52 years of age, 57 kilos. She deadlifted 140 kilos. But that's not even the impressive part. The impressive part is that she did that after doing 20 kilometers of cross-country skiing in the morning. And then she got to the gym and warmed up by doing an hour of cardio. And then she hit the 140 after like 12 warm-up sets. Like a type 3, they, they, they are built for, they normally have a higher ratio of slow twitch fibers unless they have the ACTN double, 3 double R gene, which kind of, it's, it's a different topic. But uh, normally they have a higher ratio of, of slow twitch fibers. So they can actually hit a PR after two hours of training. So for them, doing six warm-up sets gradually heavier will not decrease performance. In fact, it might increase it because it will decrease anxiety. The more warm-up sets they're doing, the more comfortable they feel with the movement, the more in control they feel. And also, like, if you go from, if the first work set is 120 kilos, well, if they go, like, 20 kilos, uh, 60 kilos, 80, 120, that's, like, too fast for them. The, 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 the feeling of the heavy weight, they, they, don't have to, they don't have enough sets to get gradually acclimated to that. But if they do like the barbell, then 60 kilos, 70, 80, 90, 100, 110, then the 120, it doesn't feel as intimidating and you're going to get a better performance. Whereas a 1A, 
he can okay a friend of mine's a powerlifter when he when he warms up for the bench it's uh, always 60 kilos 100 kilos 140 180 yeah, yeah I, it would take me like 12 sets to get there mm. but it's, it's really dependent on, on the newer type also the warm-up is how the warm-up is, is used mm-hmm. but so for type for type three, the warm-up actually create a pretty powerful training effect because for the, the biggest limiting factor for type three, it's the anxiety. And doing those extra warm-up sets, it actually makes them feel more comfortable and will decrease anxiety, decreasing cortisol release, feeling more comfortable with the movements. It, it's an investment in future gains. So then just some other training parameters um, in terms then of training frequency times per week, uh, yeah. ex- exercise selections. You want to maybe just touch on that with the different types? Well, the, the more on the left you are, so the types one, the more often you can train. And that's because they, they have the, of course, if the volume is adequate for the person. Uh, that is for several reasons. First, because the, the type one is dopamine dominant. Dopamine is a pleasure neurotransmitter. Every time you have a dopamine release, you feel good. That's why a type three is competitive. That's why a type three needs to win because winning gives them that pleasurable sensation. That's why they like to take risks because taking risks increase dopamine production. That's why they like sex because sex releases dopamine production. That's why they like to eat crap because eating crap gives you dopamine. So for example, a type one A or one B, their main issue, their main problems with diet is they tend to eat a shitty diet but they don't binge out because they, they, they are eating for pleasure, but because they're getting a strong pleasure response from a small amount of cheat food, they don't feel the need to eat the whole thing. Me, because I'm dopamine resist, resistant, but I'm adrenaline sensitive, when I'm gonna cheat, I'm gonna eat the whole cupboard. I'm gonna eat everything because it's really hard for me to get the same pleasure sensation anyway. So when a type 1A or 1B is training, especially training with heavy weights or neurological stimulation because that increases dopamine even more, they get addicted to that and they need it every day. If a type 1A or 1B does not train, he will need to get that dopamine fixed a different way. So he might get into a fight. He might get into arguments. He might spend 10,000 quid on the the stock market. He, He might... Uh, get too many mistresses for his own good. He might engage in a dangerous extreme sport. He might drive his motorcycle way too fast on the highway because these are all stimulating dopamine. That's why when you look at during the off-season in American football, you often hear stories about guys getting into fights in night. Dude, you are making 10 millions a year. Don't go to a fucking nightclub and fight. You might actually like break a hand and not be able to play anymore and lose all your money. That's why you have all those stories about uh, like beating their, their, their girlfriends or wife. They have problems that were drunk and driving, uh, dr- driving under the influence of drugs, just using drugs in general. Or they come into uh, during the off season, they will gain like 30 pounds of fat, getting into camp and, and just needing to lose the weight because they eat crap. To all of these things are to compensate for the lack of, of dopamine release that they normally get during a season. It's the same thing with training. So when you are a type 1A, 1B, well, you need that dopamine stimulation more often. That's actually the reason I believe that 
the 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 reason behind the the Bulgarian system. Of course, what when Bajayev designed the Bulgarian system, that's not what he had in mind at all. But what he had in mind, even though the theory, the, the explanation he gave was that after 45 minutes, cortisol goes up and testosterone goes down. Dude, your lifters are taking two grams of testosterone a week and 150 milligrams of Dynabol a day. Doesn't matter if your testosterone goes down during the workout, you don't have any testosterone left in your body. Natural, that is. So that's, that's not the, the real explanation. And Anto Yokoshchev, who was their super heavyweight lifter, star lifter, who snatched 220 kilos. When he uh, moved to the U.S., he, he mentioned, and, and that is written in the Encyclopedia of Weightlifting by Arthur Dreschler, uh, that the reason behind that system was that Abajayev, when the athletes were in training camp, he could not control them. Mm. So the, the athletes would train like at 9 a.m., just one big session, and they, they would have the rest of the day off. They would go uh, in Sofia and just just get wasted, get into fights, because they were one A's or one B's. And to control them, what, the, what he did was just segment the training, the, the daily training into like micro sessions spread over the whole day. But it actually worked really well for type one because they get those, all those dopamine simulation throughout the day, making them feel great. And by feeling great, they don't feel the need to do other crazy stuff. So that actually works. And because a type 1A or 1B has either high GABA or high serotonin, they can very easily shut their brain down. Like a, a Bulgarian, when you look at the schedule, it's like from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., max snatch, max clean and jerk, for example. Then, like 10.15, nap. Dude, if you can nap after maxing out on a snatch and clean and jerk, you have one efficient nervous system because you can... Go from here to here in a second. Okay, mm. me if I if I lift if I max out, not only will I not be able to nap, I might actually risk running naked on the highway, and I'm just like hyped up, right? Adrenaline dominant. So, so that was actually a very good system for for Bulgarian because they, they 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 have the capacity to recover really fast, neurologically speaking, if volume is not excessive. So one A one B can easily train six days a week as long as volume is kept under control micro sessions, more sessions. If you look at the other side end of the spectrum on the right side, the type three uh, can have the, the lowest frequency because they overproduce cortisol very easily. So it's like three sessions per week, uh, sometimes four if that's all they do. So that's why for them, I, I normally use either a whole body session uh, approach, like whole body three days a week, or upper, lower, whole body. So everything gets trained at least twice in the week. Now, when you look at the, the, the people in the middle, the two A's and the two B's, the two A's can train five days a week, okay? Uh, but they're going to have to have sessions that are lower in volume intensity. So they can have like three hard sessions and two sessions that have a different feeling. Like me, for example, I, I will have in my week, I will have... Let's say right now I'm training more for, for body composition. So I'm going to have a, a typical like chest and back day, uh, then a, a, a shoulders and traps day. I'm going to have even a, an arm day. But I have two days where I do what I call a strength circuit. So it's like a squat, high pole, overhead press, rowing, or chin-up, and a bench press. 
And, and it's not, it's, it's low reps, but it's not all out. It's like 80% effort. So, so these give me a different kind of stimulation. It's not a lot of volume because it, the, the number of sets and reps is, are, are low. Uh, and uh, it's not a lot of intensity because I don't exceed like 85%. Uh, but I could also use a neuro, uh, neural charge session, which is, uh, let's say, four explosive exercises done nowhere near failure. Or it could be an easy workout just pumping with elastic bands. Or it could be conditioning work on a prowler or another eccentric less exercise. Mm -hmm. So I can have like a type 2A can have three, maybe four hard sessions. You can train five days a week so that the other one or two would be easier workouts. Uh, the 2B can train four or five sessions a week if they are mostly pump work, like bodybuilding work. If they have heavy lifting in there, three or four days a week. Like for example, if you look at what Paul Carter is doing, now Paul, it's funny, someone who's had success in training, either getting strong or, or getting big or muscular, they, I find that they normally gravitated toward what works for their neurotype. Mm. So if you look at, at Jim Wendler, Jim Wendler is a 1A, you look at 531, very type 1A program, meaning very low volume, focus on, on fairly heavy weights. Now, Jim doesn't go like to 100% or max out. But what he does is you have that one set in a workout where you try to beat a rep record with a percentage. It's a challenge. 1A love challenges. So, so even though it's not a challenge for a max lift, the max rep with at least 80% is still a 1A, an effective 1A approach. Um, so when you look at people like that, or John Meadows, John Meadows program, typical, very effective to be programs. So, so when you read what someone is doing and does that instinctively, it's because it fits their neurotype. So Paul uh, has recently moved to more and more three or four days a week workout when he trains heavier because he's a 2B and he knows that if he trains more often than that, he crashes neurologically. When he's doing more bodybuilding, when he was preparing for a bodybuilding competition, he was doing mostly pump work, bodybuilding work, he was training six days a week, five or six days a week. Hmm. So it, it really depends on the, the, the composition of the workouts. And then exercise type then as well. So that's, that's frequency. So you want to talk about the exercise types that goes with the, with the neurotype? Well, I think that personally, I believe that, okay, well, the, the type 1A and 1B, they, they need the greatest ratio of, of High neurological demand exercises. Mm. I have a scale uh, of seven levels of neurological demand for an exercise. I, level number one is the highest. So it's going to be gymnastic, gymnastic drills like muscle up, like uh, the, the front lever, back lever, walking on your hands, for example. Uh, I don't put chin-ups in there. It's, to me, it's more of a uh, strength exercise. You would also have Olympic lifts in that first category the highest level of neurological demand. Then you have the level two, which is your deadlift, your squat. Uh, any exercise focusing on pretty much the whole body, like a push press, uh, or with axial loading, like a, the lower back is under pressure. So, so like a bent over barbell row would be a level two. So anything that puts the lower, body, the lower back under lots of pressure or involves pretty much the whole body, that's a level two. So still a pretty high neurological demand. The level three, would be your bench press, your military press, the mm -hmm. compound movements that work like half the body or, or less than that. 
multi-joint, but not without any actual loading. The level four and five would still be compound movements, but using either cable for level four and machines for level five. So a lat pull down or seated row would be a level four, a leg press or axe squat or chest press would be a level five. Six and seven are your isolation exercise on cable, on free weights and on cable and machines. So of course, when you are a type one, one A, one B, you want to be like 75% of your exercises would be in that first three or four levels. Mm-hmm. So a level one would not use, of course, gymnastic exercise, but you can use Olympic lifts if he, if he likes them. Otherwise, it's going to be like a big basic lift, maybe a, a few machine big lift if, if needed. Uh, 25% of the, the, the volume can be spent on, on uh, lower levels, but 75% would be more on the big basics. Mm-hmm. I also include loaded carries in, in, in level two, by the way. Uh, the, the 2A... The 2A needs a pretty equal volume of neurological and muscular. So it would have exercises from across the board. So it would have uh, some level one and two, some level uh, three and four, and some isolation work, depending on the ratio. So it's like 50% in the, the higher category and 50% in the lower category. A type 2B would have 25% of his volume in the first three categories, but he wouldn't use the first category, like level two and level three, and 75% would be four, five, six, or seven. Mm. And then the three, the three actually that is kind of weird because even though he has the highest level of anxiety, he does not need a lot of isolation work. He actually doesn't like that because he doesn't need that mind-muscle connection just like the, the 2B does. But what the type three likes is improving technical efficiency. Mm. So so if you give them a a lot of people, you have a typical type three walks in your office, right? Like shoulders forward, uh, like not a lot of muscle. You can see that he he doesn't have like a strong drive to be there. Uh, Well, you natural and you you try to have him do a squat and the back is rounded. He cannot reach lower than the quarter squat because of tension. So the natural tendency of a trainer is to put him on like a leg press, leg extension, leg curl. That doesn't work for type 2 because it will not fix the anxiety issue. Yes, at first, the squat will be hard for three or four weeks. But the type 3 is super patient. He can stick with a squat for 10 years if he needs to. As long as he's seeing technical improvement, he is motivated. The thing is that most coaches very few strength coaches or belt or personal trainers are type three you have some of them but it, it, they're pretty they're, they're not as common because a type three normally is not passionate about lifting he's passionate more about uh, endurance and stuff like that so so for us we are mostly type one b's type two a's and type two b's if we are strength coaches or personal trainers uh we need to see improvement either seeing the weight go up or getting that nasty pump. We, we don't understand that some people don't actually need that. Mm-hmm. They, they, they are, the type three, if they see that, okay, I'm moving better, I'm feeling more comfortable, even if the weight didn't go up, they feel good about their session. The problem is that the typical strength coach or personal trainer feels that, or he thinks that he needs to show the client improvement. 
So that's why he's picking those easier exercises so that the, to give the illusion of progress mm -hmm. to the client. But a type three, that, that's not doing him justice. It's best to stick to the big basics because they have a lot of room for improvement. They are very patient. But of course, you might need to scale the movement down. So maybe you can't do a full deadlift because you are so anxious that you, your hip flexors are just tight as rocks. So you might stick with a Romanian deadlift. You might not even be able to go lower than your knees at first, but you are working the movement pattern. Mm. And as you are getting more comfortable, you will see that the client can go lower and lower and lower because the problem, the, the mobility issue is mostly because of anxiety, not because of an actual mobility problem. You will actually often have a type three be able to do a perfect body weight squat. But as soon as he has a bar on his back, then he can't go more than a quarter squat down because of anxiety. So you need patience. You need to reassure them, give them a lot of coaching feedback. And that's another thing. You don't coach the five types the same way. A type 1A, if you start to tell them, okay, I want you to put your feet at a 15 degrees angle. You want to grab the bar and squeeze hard, bring your elbows to your rib cage, raise your chest up, Take a big breath, contract your abdominals, push your knees out, screw your feet into the floor. He's going to throw a 10-kilo plate to your head. A type 1A or even a 1B, they, they, the worst thing you can do is overcoach. Hmm. A type 3, you need to overcoach them. They need to know every single detail of an exercise. The more they know, the less anxiety they're going to have. Uh, a, a type 2A is in the middle. A type 2B, they need to feel. So if they don't feel an exercise properly, you need to change the exercise. Otherwise, it will kill their motivation. Uh, a type 2B, they need to, be, to feel competent and, and they don't want to disappoint you. There's nothing worse to add than have uh, more of a, I would say, a negative feedback coaching style with a type 2B, like the typical drill sergeant. Come on, push harder, push harder. Come on, you're not trying. You know what I'm talking about, right? Mm. That kind of coach with a type 2B, he will go quiet. It doesn't work. They need positive reinforcement, positive feedback. A type 1, I'm going to tell you a story. When I started coaching, the first two group of athletes I was working with were hockey players and figure skaters. Mm. Uh, of course, I was more comfortable with the hockey players because I had just finished my... my football career so uh, football hockey pretty much the same type of people in there uh, so i was coaching the hockey player like i was still pretty much the same age as they were so i was challenging them making fun of them lighting a fire under their ass i mean there is no way you can do that squat i've seen you you had the, the legs of my girlfriend has bigger legs than you do well she actually had because she was a very strong bodybuilder but you see what i mean i'm making fun of them challenging them actually made them push harder because they wanted to prove me wrong. Now, I was coaching my occupiers like that. Then uh, one of the figure skater I was coaching was competing at national championships. He was the national junior champion, and that was her first year in the seniors, and she was favorite to do a podium. She was like supposed to be the future figure skating in Canada. And I'm, I'm at my friends, and... We are playing a drinking game called Name the Song. So we, are, we have a playlist on our computer and the song from the 80s just pop out. And the first one who, who gets the song or the singer wins and all the other has to drink uh, 
type soda. Anyway, so uh, uh, at, at like 7 p.m., I just walk out and, and go to the living room to watch figure skating, which is kind of weird when you're a bunch of guys drinking diet soda and one of them goes to the living room to watch figure skating. Mm. Uh, so, but the athlete that was coaching was, was performing and she had the worst performance of her life. Like she fell on, on like easy skills. She, she would hit like 99 times out of 100. Mm -hmm. So then I, I was almost crying because I always, a type 2A, they need to create reciprocity. So I always created very strong connection with any athlete I was working with. That, that's my natural tendency as far as neurological profile goes. So the next week we are at the gym, which is actually a small room uh, in the ice rink. And it's funny because the girls are doing power cleans with their, their skating ropes, so skating dresses. So anyway, so I, I said, okay, we're, today we're going to work uh, on abdominal and core strength because some people here fall a little bit too often. Ah, Christian. I know. She started crying. It took her three months just to be able to talk to me again and six months so that we could actually have a working relationship together. Yeah. And that's a pure example of you cannot coach a type three like you would coach a type one. Yeah. That doesn't work. So it's it, not understanding how someone works will allow you to get the best performance possible in the gym as well as in competition. Sweet. Uh, listen, there's, I've tons more questions for you. I think a part two is what we're going to need to go into. I want to ask about the different uh, recovery traits between the types and then obviously get into nutrition and, and supplements with the types. But uh, just one or two, uh, one or two questions just wrapping up here. Um, I also want to ask about like how you train the strengths and weaknesses. We, we might, might get into that. But one question I do want to ask is, and I'm sure you've probably come across this, um, be it online or in live presentations, but what sort of cr criticisms do have you gotten back off some people? Like in terms of like, you know, like say like real evidence based to like back up this whole neurotyping yeah. thing. Um, Cause like, so, you know, I, I know I asked you a little bit for the background of neurotyping earlier on, um, but uh, I, I know that a lot of it, some of it comes from Braverman. Some of it comes from um, Claudinger. And then obviously there's some there's some traditional Chinese medicine stuff there, and then obviously just from your own practical coaching yeah. experience over the years. Like, is there? I know, like, say something that comes to my mind is like, you know, when Charles first came out with biosignature, and everyone like, and then some people actually started to go off and do blood tests to see if like the sites were correlating with hormones, and they were yeah. like, no, this doesn't correlate at all. So, yeah. is is there any way of like, is there any uh, evidence to show? There's, there's, a, there's a thing though. Okay, with biosignature, uh, measuring hormones. First of all. Hormones fluctuate throughout the day. Like if you measure cortisol, you have to measure it 24 hours because you don't know when it's going to spike. Mm. But the problem is, okay, people don't understand either hormones or neurotransmitters properly. It's not just the level of the hormone. It's the sensitivity of the receptor. Yeah, the receptor, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's also how effective the second messenger is. So once the, the hormone gets – okay, so first of all, okay, you need – the, the, the level of the hormone or the neurotransmitter is important, okay? If you don't have any, then it can't work. Then it, it has to connect on the receptor. Now, the more sensitive your receptors are, the better the hormone can do its job. So if you're more sensitive, even if uh, your testosterone level is low, for example, if your androgen receptors are super sensitive, it's still going to work. Yeah. Now, the third level is 
from the nucleus perspective, like how the message goes from the receptors to the nucleus to make stuff happen. Now that can also be inefficient. So yes, when you measure hormones, well, you can look at, okay, I, here, but you're not looking here, you're not looking here. So, so okay, so yeah, okay, but if you have abdominal fat, it, it's cortisol. I measure my cortisol, it's not that high. Yeah, but is your receptor problematic? Is your nucleus problematic? Are you super sensitive to cortisol, making you respond more strongly? So that's what people don't really understand. Mm. Now, it's the same thing when you're a transmitter. Now, uh, I do, it's funny, when I give seminars, when I give seminars, I don't remember, and I've given that seminar like, like 25 times, maybe more. I have never had one negative comment. Uh, maybe it's because when I, when, I can, when I explain it, people just instinctively, they know it's true. Well, usually you have your stick too in your hand, so people aren't going to say anything. <laughs> Pardon? I said usually you have your, yeah, stick, your, yeah, yeah. your, your, stick, your stick in yeah, your hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just that might the, be a reason. Just for the viewers and listeners, Christian always has to present with a stick. He, lo he loves having a stick. But, but, but it's actually, I actually explain the coaching stick during my, during my seminars. Yeah. It's, uh, because one thing I use to like, diagnose neurotype is nonverbal cues, hmm. like posture, uh, handshake, uh, how you're looking at someone, stuff like that. Uh, can you wait while you're seated? All that stuff gives me clues. But the coaching stick... It is, it's a way to, for, um, for self-reassurance. Mm. So when I'm under like, a lot of stress, because as I mentioned, anxiety is nothing more than your nervous system firing too fast. So when I give a presentation, my nervous system is running on all cylinders. Yeah. I'm actually anxious when I present because my, I'm overthinking. I could not perform anything physical when I present. In fact, and I, I, I can easily, like without warming up, can front squat like 140, 160, 180, like with a perfect upright posture. I've been an Olympic weightlifter. I've squatted. It's, it, I can I can squat in my sleep. Mm. But on the on at the end of the day when I present, I could not demonstrate a bodyweight squat because my hip flexors are so tight from presenting because uh, anxiety increased tightness in the flexors. Uh, but that anxiety actually makes me present better because I can make connection. Anxiety makes you think too fast. Mm. So it can be a negative when I, when I present because I know the material, it's actually enhanced my presentation. But I need the stick for reassurance. It's an anti-anxiety tool. Like some people, when they, have, they are anxious, they will just like, grab their shoulder, grab their arm, grab the chair, or grab the, 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 door, the door handle in the car. It's just a strategy to reduce anxiety, self-reassurance. That's why I have a coaching stick. Uh, how did you find presenting without the stick for your course, for your video course? You, you mentioned that you're like, I don't have my stick. Hey, it, it's, it's really hard, to be honest. It's not natural. It, it really isn't. But uh, I think I had a, a, a pencil or something. that, that I need to have to hold on to something. But yeah, for, as far as I, I did have some criticism. The only criticism I, I got was one, from one psychologist, a sports psychologist. And I can totally understand it because... Uh, it's you know it's neurology it's still psychology mm. and I, I could understand that is you would be upset that a non-psychologist would talk about things that are normally limited for psycho uh, for mm. psychologists so and right from the bat that would give him uh, a, a negative uh, view of the whole thing 
And of course, he was asking for what are your sources? Do you have any clinical documentation proving what you're saying? Uh, and what I can say is, well, just it's, sim it's simple deduction because the way I build the system is look at the symptoms of, okay, look, take each neurotransmitter individually, okay? Let, let's take dopamine or let's take adrenaline or let's take glutamate or let's take GABA, doesn't matter. And what I did was, okay, I'm going to look at the psychological or psychiatric literature and look at all the symptoms of high dopamine activity. Here, the receptor is sensitive or, or, or the, 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 the dopamine is high. So look at all the symptoms of high dopamine activity and I listed them all out. I can, I can send you the document. Then I, I, I took all the symptoms of high adrenaline, all the symptoms of high serotonin activity, all the symptoms of low serotonin activity. I did that for every single neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. That when you see, okay, you look at glutamate, signs of, of glutamate dominance, uh, you have like, very strong emotions, you have very negative response to failure, you have uh, easily become addicted to anything that gives them pleasure, uh, easily fall in love. I mean, I have like 20 symptoms of them. And from that, what I did, okay, I'm gonna find a way to evaluate someone's personality. Now that I have, okay, if you have all of these symptoms, these are signs of high dopamine or high dopamine activity. Well, then it's pretty easy to say okay, that type of personality is that way because that neurotransmitter is very efficient while this one is really inefficient. So it really is, of course, neurotyping is something I created. So of course, there's no literature on it. Yes, there are some precursor work from Braverman, some precursor work from Cloninger and from a lot of psychiatrists because psychiatrists, contrary to psychologists, they work with brain chemistry. Mm -hmm. That's why I say, and that might be the reason why psychologists don't like me, even though my father is a psychologist. I said that psychology does not exist. Psychology is only studying the symptoms, not studying the cause. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have like, you are like, you, you um, they, will, they will find like just an emotional response to anything. So for example, okay, you are, you have a problem being comfortable with a woman. You have problem uh, giving your confidence to a girl because you had a bad relationship with your mother. That's psychology. Mm. Well, me, I would look at, okay, you have problem committing to a relationship because that neurotransmitter and glutamate is low. So you have problem making connection. Your empathy will be low because of that. So, so to me, it's more, I always say I'm the least romantic person on the planet because I, I don't believe in love. I don't believe in emotions. Emotions are only chemical reaction in your brain. So if you understand what brain chemical neurotransmitter creates what emotion, then you can know if you are more prone to having that emotion, that's because you are sensitive to that neurotransmitter. Mm. To me, it's simple. It's very simple and it's logic. The problem is that, yeah, but do you have evidence supporting it? No, because it's deduction work. And maybe it's not like 100% accurate. Maybe you have high dopamine dominance, but you also have some adrenaline dominance. But it's still very accurate. And, I've, and every time I give a seminar, I always bring some people to the front and I can diagnose them within three minutes just by like, from talking to them, asking them a few questions, looking at their body language, all that mm -hmm. stuff. And I tell them, okay, when this happens, you're like that, you're like that, you're like that. And they all freak out. I've never been wrong once. 
It's always 100% accurate. I've had people cry during seminars. I've had people just burst out laughing because it's so accurate. I have people, I just say, I finally understand why I'm like that. So uh, do I have any like, scientific literature? Well, you can look at any scientific literature on the symptoms of high or low neurotransmitter levels. Mm. And then you can piece that up for yourself. It's pretty straightforward. Great stuff. All right, I have five minutes, five minutes only. So I'm going to ask you two questions. So you're going to have to be short. <laughs> uh, what, 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 uh, what, current, what current books are you reading? And- you always ask me that question. I, I hate that question. <laughs> yeah, well, what, what are you, so are you reading anything good and what would be your top recommendation currently? What, what are you currently reading? What's your top recommendation? I only have five minutes now, so you got to make this snappy. I'm reading a novel that doesn't really apply. Yeah, it doesn't uh, apply. What's the novel? Uh, dude, I don't know. It's, it's a French book. So I don't, I don't, it's, You're it's always reading. Fr- it's always French books you're reading too, for fuck's sake. Uh, well, it's, uh, it's uh, like a, a mystery piece, like the uh, L'Abbaye des Saint-Crimes. So it's basically a, a novel. It's translated from, uh, from Italian, and it's, it's uh, a story about um, uh, a knight who's uh, like, uh, working with, like, uh, who's trying to figure out the crime and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's like a religious, historical do you, piece. That, do, you read, do you read a lot of nonfiction? Oh yeah, yeah. I, mo- most of the stuff I read now is nonfiction. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I've, to be honest, I, I've read two millions training books, mm-hmm. and, and I still do from time to time. The problem is that it becomes really repetitive. Yeah. I mean, okay, I'm, I'm, I, I will make a bet that okay, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars to anybody who can give me a training method I've never tried or at least read about. I'm pretty sure nobody can come up with anything I haven't done. So well, it's like I'm, what, 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 what if someone makes up a new one? Then he wouldn't have tried that. I probably made that up myself <laughs> before. It's fine. And it's funny because I, I you know, well, the, the exception being Joel Seedman. Uh, he makes a lot of stuff up. So maybe he can, I can learn stuff from him, but I wouldn't do that. But uh, what I'm saying is that there are very few books that are worth the effort for me at the moment. I've been in that, in that field for like 20 plus years and my driving force has always been to learn as many methods and techniques and systems as possible. Mm. So there is very little I can actually learn from full books. I would read articles, but not from full books because I, I cannot justify spending the time. Right. Uh, cool. I, I, will, I, I will say that I did read recently Fortitude Training by Scott Stevenson. Scott Stevenson yeah. Yeah, and I really like that book. Even though I'm not a pure hypertrophy guy, I, I, I agree 100% with what is in that book. Yeah. When, I wrote it, when I read it, I actually sent an email to Scott and I said, fuck you, I wish I'd, read, I'd written that yeah. book. I heard you saying that before. So, yeah. All right, last question. Um, we're going to dinner and you can invite five people to dinner and these five people can be dead or alive. Who would you invite and why? By the way, you know that by a type 2A, they, they can't make decisions. Uh, that, that's a part of my, of my neurotype. Uh, I would have Paul Carter. Paul Carter is just an awesome guy. I would have Charles because Charles just has no filter. So he, you know he's going to say some crazy shit and it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have Dorian Yates just cool. because. Hmm? He's just cool. an awesome person. Yeah, yeah, uh, then I would probably have... You know, I'm not a social person. I don't like to be around people. Uh, I would probably have Louis Simmons in there. Cool. 
It's good. Life, and, really. uh, I guess like saying Adolf Hitler would not be a good answer right now. I'm kidding. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for a political leader. I love politics. Uh, so I would, I would probably have Ronald Reagan. Really? Ronald Reagan? Yeah. 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 I, I love politics in general. So I, I, could, I could have like three, have like several politicians in there because if I, or if I have like four training guys in Ronald Reagan, he's not going to say much. So I probably I would have I'd like... Say, I'd say Reagan will still get a few words in there now. Yeah, probably. I, I would have like Reagan and Putin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd Putin's, be I, 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 Putin's awesome. Now you have to bring Gorbachev then as well because all the Russians, all the hardcore Russians hated Gorbachev because he was such a, he, he was like, he was just too liberal for them. You know? he was yeah, like, I, I know. I, I want a hardcore Russian. I want Putin. And for, I, want, I want to see like what a, I, I, in fact, like that, that, I would like to be in that, that dinner with Putin and Trump. That's going to be something. Yeah. Like two one A's, but one A was a sociopath and one A was a, was a narcissist. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> what a great way to end the episode so listen we'll definitely get you back on uh, get you booked in because I've got I said, a ton more questions but for oh yeah and by the way um, just real quick plug your website and also your certification course real quick before we go yeah yeah so uh, we, I'm, I'm the worst with business decisions so I'm uh, you can visit uh, tibrb.com yeah, we have yeah we, we have uh, like three videos every week and two articles every week uh, and we also have a, a, the Neurotype certification, which is also available on the website. Totally. So, uh, it will be, uh, be all linked up in the show notes. And I can't speak highly enough of all of Christian's materials. Like, you mean, like when I first came across the Black Book of Train Secrets and then uh, Tyrion Application of Modern Strength and Power Methods, like, they were my first two introductions to you. And it was just like, these books are amazing. Like, <laughs> like the second Not I finished, that for a guy who barely speak English. I know. The second I finished Black Books, I just read the, uh, the, black, or the black Book of... Uh, um, I always forget that name. I was going to get it out of my head. Yeah, the Black Book of Train Secrets up there on my bookshelf. The Black Book of Train Secrets. By the way, I'm, uh, I'm going to tell you a secret, okay? Oh. Uh, I'm a 2A. The 2A are mimickers. They, they like to mimic the person who has the greatest influence on them. I, I wrote the Black Book as a copy of the Polican principle. Ah. It's really my, I, I use the exact same uh, structure kind of as the Polican yeah, principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It I was use, similar. Yes, yeah, similar information, but with just my own twist. And it was my first step at the book, so I, I went with the one that had the greatest influence on me. But it, and you had you had you had photos in yours, but uh, but the second I finished the Black Book of Train Secrets, I just I reread it again. I just loved it. it was, yeah. But yeah, cool. And and the same with Tyrion Application of Modern power, uh, Strength and Power Methods. Two fantastic books. But listen, uh, just for the listeners, viewers, any any resource you can get from Christian, absolutely, it's one hundred percent worth the investment. So definitely go over and check out tibarmy.com, which will be in the show notes. And definitely, if if anything interests you here in terms of neurotype and his course is just phenomenal. So we're definitely gonna have Christian back on at a future date. He's a busy guy, so hopefully we'll get that done sooner than later at some stage. But he will be a father soon enough too. So Ace. cut him some credit. So a lot of the parents just have no sympathy for you right now. They're like, welcome to our world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But for now, for myself, Robbie Burke from the OPEX podcast and from Christian Thibodeau from TibArmy.com. Peace.